Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Our passage for this week is James 4, verses 11 and 12. A number of years ago, I was looking through a book of famous paintings. And as I was looking through this book, I can recall coming across this one painting set in Holland. I can't recall who the artist was, uh, nor for that matter uh, can I really even remember the painting itself. If I remember correctly, there was a man dressed a lot like one of the pilgrims in the foreground. He had had on a pair of black pants with the white stockings that reach up to the knee, and he had a, on a wide uh, white collar around his neck and this tall black hat. Again, I, I may be misremembering some of that. I don't really recall exactly because what struck me about the painting actually wasn't so much the painting itself, but rather the title. It was called simply A Dutch Village or something to that effect. And that struck me. That's rather interesting at the time because it seemed to indicate that there's something unique about a Dutch village that made it different from, say, an English village or a French village or an Italian village. And at least to some degree, that was evident just from the man standing there in the foreground. You wouldn't travel to Japan at this point in history and expect to see a man dressed like that or to India or to Spain. No, you knew just from his way of dress that this man was most definitely Dutch. And from the architecture in the background, you could tell he was standing in a Dutch village. The reason I found that also interesting is because I don't know how easy it would be to recreate that painting today. I mean, don't get me wrong, you could definitely paint a picture of a Dutch village today and you could even call it a Dutch village. I just don't know if you'd be able to tell if it was a Dutch village by the painting itself. I mean, sure, you could find a place in Holland with a traditional windmill in the background, and you'd say to yourself, that must be a Dutch village. But that's only because you know that historically, at one point in time, there was something distinct about those types of windmills that made them Dutch. Not because there are any sort of elements to Dutch architecture that make it distinctly so today. Right? Fact is, we live in an age of globalization. As the speed of business and travel and communication accelerates, and as the world gets increasingly smaller and smaller, there are fewer and fewer barriers to separate nations and allow them to develop their own distinct cultures. Instead, you see cultures running together and sort of slowly blurring into a single homogenous global culture. But at one point in time, this wasn't true. At one point in time, there was such a thing as a Dutch village inhabited by Dutch men and women who lived in homes built by Dutch builders who who wore distinctly Dutch clothes and ate distinctly Dutch food. And that was all quite different from what you might encounter in an English village or a French village or an Italian village. Point being, there was a way of life. There were traditions that varied as you traveled from one nation to another. The unique circumstances of that nation, its economy, its climate, its religion, its topography, these all came together to form a unique national identity, an identity that would ultimately manifest itself in something as simple as the way one dressed, or the way they built their house, or what they ate. Well, I don't know if you realize this, but that's how it's, how it's supposed to work with Christianity as well. Jesus says, Matthew 5, 14-16, the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, He says, You are the light of the world. 
A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Are you guys hearing that? What Jesus is saying here is that you are God's ambassadors to this world. He's left you here as a witness to His kingdom. And the idea is that people are supposed to be able to look at you and tell just from seeing how you live that you're different. That you belong to a different place. That you hail from a different kingdom. And not only that, but they're supposed to be able to see that and thank God for it. What does that look like practically? Like, I, I, would, I would suppose that you've heard all this before. You know that people are supposed to see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. You know that Christians are supposed to live different, be different. You know that people are supposed to be able to tell that you're a follower of Christ by looking at you. But what does that really look like practically? I mean, do you ever wonder about that? I, I think about it all the time. I wonder, what is it about us that people are supposed to see? What is it that that sets us apart? After all, you you look just a little further in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus condemns public displays of prayer, public displays of giving. On the whole, it seems like He doesn't want us flaunting our religious performances to the world. He actually considers that kind of religion as hypocrisy. So how are people supposed to know that? How are they going to be able to tell that we're Christians if we're not flaunting it? Is it by our clothing? You know, are we supposed to wear funny hats and wide collars around our necks? You know, God told Israel not to trim the edges of their beards, for instance. Is it something like that? Are people supposed to know us because we wear a gold cross around our neck? Or is it because we have scripture verses on the walls of our houses? Or because we pray before our meals and say God bless instead of goodbye? No, I would expect that you already realize that it's much different than any of this. I would expect you know that Jesus said that the way people would tell us apart was by our love. John 13, 34-35, He says, A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's supposed to be what sets us apart, right? People are supposed to know us by our love. But even still, what does that mean? What does that look like? I mean, can you tell a Christian by the amount of money they give to charity or by the amount they spend volunteering at the local homeless shelter? Maybe, I guess. No doubt we're supposed to show mercy to the poor, but all the same other people show mercy to the poor too. It's not just Christians. So again, what sets us apart? What is it about the way we live that's supposed to be unique? I think the answer is much more subtle than we probably realize or give credit to. I'm sure you have friends that you know genuinely love you, and if someone were to ask you how you know that, you wouldn't necessarily say it it's because of all the stuff they give or do for you. In fact, you probably even have a hard time putting your finger on it. But if you thought about it long enough, you'd finally say things like, you know, well, they're excited to see me. When I walk into the room, they smile. Like they remember things about me. 
They know things I like and, and don't like. In short, they pay attention to me. Like when I talk to them, they actually listen. Like really listen. That's how I know they love me. They, I mean, they care for me. True love, real love, isn't something you can fake because it's displayed in the imperceptible details, the really minor things that the hypocrite doesn't know to mimic. It's the kind of stuff that's so seemingly insignificant that we hardly even pay attention to it. It's expressed in things like, for instance, our speech. Back in James chapter 3, I said that we sometimes downplay the significance of our speech. When we were kids, we even used to say things like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's because we tend to think that since words are immaterial, that they don't carry much weight. We can create whatever words we want in an instant. They're spoken, and then they hang in the air for a moment, and then they're gone. And that all gives us the impression that words are very misty sorts of things. They lack any real substance. But we saw back in chapter 3 that it's actually the exact opposite. There is potential in our words both to save and to damn. With our words we speak eternal life or we condemn to hell. Fact is, while words can be produced with great ease, there is yet nothing that we will do or achieve in this life that will last so long as the impact of our words. Yes, words may be very cheap, but that doesn't mean that they're to be treated lightly. Instead, that's actually what makes them so dangerous. They're so incredibly easy to produce, and yet they carry such tremendous weight. They don't just disappear into the air after they're spoken. Their impact is felt. Sometimes it's seared even into eternity. And this is why we, of all people, who live as ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven, must be very careful with what we say. We must be very measured with our words. For several months now, we've been working our way through the epistle of James. And in this epistle, James is explaining first the source and then the consequence, and then finally the solution to this series of conflicts that's been occurring in the church. The source, we learned, is the church's idolatry. It would seem that it's their idolatry of money in particular. They're fighting because they desire financial security. The consequences of this idolatry is trials. God has allowed Satan to persecute this body as a means of both highlighting and correcting this idolatry since he is a jealous husband who demands the full and complete attention of his bride. This means that the solution, therefore, is to repent. The church must abandon their idols and place their trust wholly in God since that is both the source of their conflicts and the source of their trials. With that in mind, James now turns his attention to what this repentance looks like. He's already addressed, in part, various solutions to their conflicts earlier in this letter. They need to stop showing partiality. For instance, they need to start showing mercy. They need to be very careful in selecting uh, who they pick to lead their churches. But here, James isn't addressing mere solutions to their conflicts, but rather acts of repentance. That's how he ended this section in chapter 4, verses 1 to 10. He says, Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. In short, in short he tells them to repent. 
And I would have you note that this is way different than simply telling them what steps to take to prevent these sorts of conflicts in the church. We can all sometimes do things, for instance, perhaps due to ignorance or due to indiscretion that may unintentionally contribute to our problems. And and in those instances, it's very helpful to receive the kind of instruction that shows us how our actions are contributing to our suffering. But that's not exactly what's going on here. The, The real reason for these readers' problems aren't just simply that their actions contradict the gospel. Rather, as James has showed us, it's that internally they are given over to idols. In their heart, they have rejected the care and provision of God in in favor of seeking their own way of financial security. And it's that unbelief, that lack of faith in particular, that's inciting the jealousy of God. And so if these churches are going to find a way out of these conflicts, it's not going to happen just by changing what they do. It's going to happen by changing who they are. They must repent of their idolatrous faith. So how are they going to do that? Well, interestingly enough, James turns his attention to the matter of their speech. Now again, this may seem like a funny place to begin. After all, we tend to think that our words don't really count for much. Even James himself seems to indicate at the end of chapter 2 that it's our actions which truly matter more so than our words. But you have to keep in mind, it's as Jesus himself says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In other words, yes, you can sometimes speak hypocritically, just as you can learn to act hypocritically. But at the end of the day, your words will inevitably reveal who you are and what you believe. This is James' point at the end of chapter 3, you will recall. The tongue cannot be tamed, he says. It will inevitably uh, indicate what sort of person a man is. So if you want to find a man who's qualified to teach the church, watch for the overall sum of his speech. So this is actually a very logical place for James to begin, by addressing their speech. And over the next several chapters, James is going to demonstrate how what these believers are revealing with their speech is inciting the jealousy of God. That's still the topic here, remember. Spiritual adultery arouses the jealousy of God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Well, James is going to explain how their speech demonstrates their idolatry and pride. He's going to explain how their speech reveals the sort of heart that invites the discipline of God. And so if they're going to escape this suffering that God has sent on them for their spiritual benefit, then it's going to begin by repenting of the attitudes that produce this type of speech. Again, this is where James is heading over the next several passages, and he begins this morning by addressing how we respond to the disputes that we sometimes have with other believers. Let's go ahead and read the passage. Once again, that's James 4, 11 and 12. And James says this, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? It's very natural to think that since Christians are supposed to be characterized by love, that the church is a relatively safe environment for believers. 
Now, you would think that this would be the very last place to have someone sin against you. You would think that this would be the very last place to suffer great harm. You would think that, but you'd think wrong. This is something Christians sometimes misunderstand. They expect that when they come to church, they're going to be treated well, since Christ has said that His disciples will be known by their love. What such Christians forget is that sanctification is a process. It's something that progresses over time, and very often it begins with the very worst of sinners. Meaning, when you come into the church, you're bound to encounter some people with rough edges. You're bound to encounter people that are very likely at times to sin against you. All to say, it is possible for Christians to do awful things to one another. Since although they are in Christ, at the same time, they're only being transformed into that image progressively over time. So we're bound to sin against one another along the way. And at times, in some pretty significant ways, it's simply unavoidable. I mean, just take the Corinthian church, for example. Between 1 and 2 Corinthians, we see that believers are boasting against one another. They're bragging about their spiritual giftedness and training in an apparent effort to demonstrate how much better they are in relation to the rest of the church. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a young man who's sleeping around with his stepmother. In chapter 6, the believers are apparently bringing lawsuits against one another. In chapter 7, they're considering divorcing one another. They seem to want to do it for sanctified reasons, but still they're trying to divorce one another. By chapter 8, we learn that the more theologically informed are flaunting their liberties before their brethren and causing them to sin against their conscience. By the time we get to 2 Corinthians, we learn that some have even decided to attack Paul's ministry, question his motives. Point being, they're sinning against one another. And quite a lot, apparently. Well, this is the sort of situation that James readers are facing. I've already mentioned this many times before, so I'll keep it brief, but it would appear that you, in this setting, you have Christians that are bringing lawsuits against one another. These lawsuits may pertain to business deals gone bad or even the refusal to pay back wages. That seems to be what James will hint at over the next, next couple of passages. Even worse, as these believers are bringing these lawsuits to the church rather than to the secular courts, church leaders are either denying justice or at least appearing to do so. Either way, the poor brethren in the church are coming away with the impression that they aren't getting a fair shake. All in all, they're just plain treating one another very badly. Perhaps you've had something like this happen before. In fact, I'd imagine if you've been a Christian for very long, then you most definitely have had something like this happen before. Maybe the offense was small. Maybe it was no more than a a bit of gossip spread about you or something like that. Maybe it was bigger. Personally, I, I once had a Christian employer do the exact same thing to me that James describes here. Someone I trusted, someone I admired, Uh, didn't inform me of a benefit that I was supposed to receive. Apparently they were trying to keep the the department's budget down. Anyways, they ended up shorting me something like $12,000 over the span of about three years. Maybe you've had something like this happen to you. Again, maybe someone slandered you. Maybe a a Christian gave you the raw end of a business deal. It could be big or small. In the end, it doesn't matter. The point is that you were treated unjustly by a fellow brother or sister in Christ. Tell me, what happens in these scenarios? 
Think about it from your perspective. How did you handle that bit of injustice? Thankfully for me, my situation worked out. I didn't have to do anything. HR found out what was going on. They, they not only told me what was happening, but they also saw to it to make sure that I was eventually paid for what I was owed. Uh, maybe your situation didn't turn out like that. If so, how did you handle it? How did you respond? I'll tell you how these Christians are responding here in James 4. <laughs> They're angry. They're getting treated badly. And they're getting hot about it. And how is that anger manifesting itself? You see the answer in verse 11. They're, quote, speaking evil against one another. The word there is the Greek word kataleleo, and it means actually means something like slander. It can be used in a variety of different contexts in different ways, but whatever the context, the basic idea is that it's speech aimed at attacking another person, and most particularly by attacking their reputation. That's one way they're responding, by trashing the reputation of those who've wronged them. Verse 11, we also learn that they're judging one another. The word there is krino. And it actually carries the connotation of not mere discernment, but actually condemnation. Like these Christians are going around saying, you know, I don't think so-and-so is a Christian. After all, they certainly don't act like it. They're condemning one another with their speech. Big picture, they're attacking one another with their words, and they're doing it primarily by questioning one another's motives. That's the significance of the questioning the testimony. They're saying, I can see down into this person's heart, and their motives are clearly wicked. There's no way someone who does those kinds of things can be a Christian. Again, I think you see this happen in the church all the time, don't you? And it's not always in response to some kind of injustice. Again, that's what's happening here. This slanderous speech is provoked by their sin against one another, but a lot of time it doesn't even take that. I mean, we see someone just make the wrong sort of comment on our Facebook feed or something, and immediately we go on the attack. If, if not with our words, then at least in our hearts. We start maliciously slandering this person by making all these assumptions about their spiritual character that that we clearly don't know anything about. We say to ourselves, you know, well, the reason why they said that was because they're worldly or they don't care about God. Sometimes we'll even say they must not be a Christian. And again, we don't say this out of concern for their spiritual state. You actually have all kinds of admonitions in Scripture telling you to make judgments about other people, either out of concern for your spiritual well-being or for the well-being of others. So before you get ahead of me, don't think I'm talking about that sort of judgment. No, the kind of slander and condemnation that we're talking about here in James is the type that's driven by anger towards the other person. It's the type that doesn't fear their condemnation. Actually, it hopes for it. It's an accusation driven by the fact that we actually want it to be true. We want them to pay for what they've done. It's driven by malice. Again, I would expect that we've felt this kind of anger towards a brother before, and sometimes for even much lighter offenses than what's causing these Christians to stumble in James. Well, in today's passage, James provides us with two reasons why, two reasons why this sort of speech incites the jealousy of God. Two reasons why this sort of speech incites the jealousy of God. So you might think of this as two reasons why you, Christian, need to repent of your hateful and malicious speech against your brothers. The first reason is this. Reason number one, condemning speech contradicts God's estimation 
of the one being condemned. That's a mouthful, so I'll say it at least one, maybe two more times. Condemnation, or I'm sorry, condemning speech contradicts God's estimation of the one being condemned. It contradicts God's estimation of the one being condemned. We see this in the first half of verse 11. James issues this command. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. And then he provides part of the reasoning for the command. He says, The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says that that any expression of sinful anger ultimately makes one liable to the judgment of God. Reason being, it would seem man is made in the image of God. So, so to curse a man made in the image of God, no matter who he is, it still functions as a kind of attack on God himself. So by the time we get to the letter of James, we should already know that malicious speech of any kind is wrong. What's interesting, though, is that if you look here, uh, James provides a very different reason for why this sort of speech is wrong amongst brothers. And the reasoning he provides helps explain why the Christian ought to be very intentional about repenting of this sin. The Sermon on the Mount, you may recall, is a message about salvation. Jesus is explaining how the bar of God's righteousness exceeds that taught by the scribes and Pharisees, so his discussion of anger is aimed at highlighting the sinfulness of sin so that his readers might see their need for salvation. That's not what's happening in James 4. James readers already recognize their need for salvation. They've already confessed their sinfulness and have cried out to Christ for salvation. They also trust that they've been forgiven by God on the basis of Christ's perfect sacrifice on the cross. So why ought they to care about sinful anger? If it isn't to earn relationship with God, then why is it still an issue? Why is it something that they still need to address? And and the answer has to do with the jealousy of God. That's the context once again. It has to do with how God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In other words, they ought to care because they are already in relationship with God on the basis of Christ's perfect sacrifice. And although they're in that relationship, it's still possible for their sin to disrupt their fellowship with God. No, God won't reject them, but He will discipline them. Now, watch how James demonstrates how this kind of speech incites that type of correction. First, note that James doesn't merely address anger here. He's speaking specifically about slanderous speech, attacking speech, or even more significantly, condemning speech, the sort of speech that regards another brother in Christ as worthy of damnation. James notes that when a Christian performs either of these types of speech, he says they aren't just speaking against their brother. They actually speak evil against the law and judge the law. Now, what does James mean by that? How does one speak evil against the law and judge the law? It would seem there are at least two possible answers to that question. First, it could mean that the Christian is condemning the law by rejecting its authority in their life. For example, I've said Leviticus 19, 9-17 seems to serve as the basis for James' understanding of righteousness throughout much of this letter. Well, verses 16-18 to 18 of that passage say this. It says, You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand, against, uh, stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. 
In other words, the Mosaic Law clearly prohibits this kind of speech. I mean, slander, right? Hate, vengeance. It's all there. So for someone to then defy that law and say, I'm not going to obey that, you could say that there's a sense in which they're standing in judgment over it. They're effectively saying, that standard is unjust, it's unwise, I don't have to abide by it. And when they do that, they're both speaking against the law and standing in judgment over it. So that's one option for what James means when he says that the one who condemns stands in judgment over the law. The second option is to understand this as saying that the one who judges their brother after they've been accepted by God stands in a sense over the law as if they were a higher court of appeal, which is overturning the judgments of the lower court. I think this is the better option for a couple of reasons. First, if you look here, James has already referred to this law earlier in this epistle as, quote, the law of liberty, meaning it's a law that's built upon the Christian's identity as a free person. It's based upon the new identity they've received in Christ by virtue of the gospel. In fact, that's even how laws like Leviticus 19, 16 to 18 were to be understood. They were an expression of Israel's freedom from Egypt. In other words, it was wrong to, quote, take vengeance against the sons, listen to the language here, against the sons of your own people, because they were your own people. Israel, remember, they were all descendants of Jacob, meaning they were essentially one big family, and that's how they understood the nation. To bear a grudge against your own people, therefore, was to contradict your identity as an Israelite. It was to deny the unity that they enjoyed as a nation. It's the same way for the Christian. We are one body in Christ. We too are a kind of family. And so to therefore bear a judge against a brother actually contradicts that identity. It goes contrary to the gospel and what it says about who we are in Christ. So that's one reason why I think that's the better option. James uses James' use of the term law actually points back to our identity as a redeemed people as much as it does to our obligations. And then second, in the second half of verse 11, and even the second half of verse 12, James explains that the one who does this kind of sin makes the mistake of assuming a role as judge. In other words, his issue isn't merely that they're transgressing the law, it's that they're assuming a position as judge, which James will explain they're not entitled to. So I really think this is the better option. James is saying that when they speak this way, when they slander or condemn their brother, They're acting like an appellate judge who is overturning the decision of the lower court. God has declared the sinner justified. He declares them acceptable in His sight. He declares them loved by Him, right? Even in spite of their sin. And they're coming around and trying to overturn that decision, either with their words, when they try to inflict harm after God has already accepted them and set His love on Him, Uh, on them, or with their words that condemn after God has already declared them justified. They're contradicting God's estimation of the one being condemned. That's kind of a problem, isn't it? I don't know if we really think about this when when we malign other Christians, but that's really what we're doing. We're contradicting God's estimation, God's judgment of that person. God says that they're fully justified, that they are acceptable in His sight. He's saying that He set His love on them, that He's going to regard them as His own son or daughter. And then we're basically going around and saying, yeah, I don't agree with that decision. I mean, have you seen how they act? 
Now go back to what James just said about God being opposed to the proud. And let me ask you, how do you think he's going to regard this very public criticism of his judgments? You see, to engage in this type of speech is to contend with God, is to say to God, now wait a second, I don't know if you really got it right here. Either that or it's to defame the blood of the cross. It's to say that Christ's blood is not sufficient to make atonement for the types of sins that this person has committed against you. In fact, I'll even take it a step further. This kind of speech is actually satanic in the true meaning of that word. Satan, remember, is the adversary. We've talked about this. He's the spiritual prosecuting attorney. Listen, that's the role we're playing whenever we malign our brother for their sin. We're pointing the finger and declaring, guilty, he's guilty. That's Satan's job. That's his goal, to attack and malign the people of God. So when we speak this way, we're doing his job for him. We're taking his side of the argument and contending with God for him. So no, our anger may not condemn us before God, since we've already been forgiven by the blood of Christ, but friends, it sure will disrupt the relationship. God isn't going to allow His people, His own people, whom He called for the express purpose of glorifying His name, to then go and criticize His decisions like this, and to even defame the efficacy of His atonement. No, that kind of speech, that kind of attitude is going to invite His discipline. So if you're guilty of this type of speech, you would be incredibly wise to repent. Don't think that God is going to let it slide. He will discipline you, both for your good and His glory. So repent. Once again, this is the first reason why condemning speech incites the jealousy of God. It invites the jealousy of God because it contradicts God's estimation of the one being condemned. And then reason number two, condemning speech contradicts God's estimation of the one doing the condemning. It contradicts his estimation of the one doing the condemning. As if it weren't enough to to challenge God's judgment of others, it actually gets worse. James tells us that when Christians speak this way, they're challenging God's estimation of themselves by trying to assume a position over and above God. He says, second half of verse 11 and on into verse 12, he says, but if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? I think you need to read this part of the passage very carefully because otherwise it can be, I think, pretty confusing. For example, if you just take verse 12 on its own, where James says there's only one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? Then it can sound like James is simply saying, don't judge. As if it's wrong for Christians to engage in any type of judgment of others. You hear uh, unbelievers and even weak Christians make this type of assertion all the time. They'll engage in some type of of, of questionable behavior and then they'll say something like, you know, the Bible says, don't judge. Or, hey, only God can judge me. But that's not really what the Bible says. When Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, He's addressing the pharisaical practice of being more concerned with the sins of others than with your own sins. 
He's addressing this prideful preoccupation with other people's sins. And he's essentially saying, stop this obviously hypocritical approach to judgment. That's actually how the phrase should be translated, by the way. Not just judge not, but stop judging. It's dealing with the ongoing practice of of habitual concern with other people's sins. He's not saying don't ever tell someone else they're in sin. We have all kinds of admonitions in Scripture to not only call sin, sin, but to even confront others about their sin. There's even this command to kick perpetually sinning members out of the church and regard them as unbelievers in Matthew 18. So clearly we are supposed to judge on at least some level. In fact, what's really weird is that there are a few passages in the New Testament that indicate that believers will actually participate in Christ's judgment of the world. So then how can James say, say, you know, there's only one lawgiver and judge, and so who are you to judge your neighbor? Well, as the saying goes, the devil is in the details, right? In particular, I would draw your attention to two points. Verse, uh, uh, number one, verse 11, James points out that his problem is with the fact that these Christians are somehow judging the law when they speak this way. And number two, in the second half of verse 12, he takes issue with the fact that they're judging their neighbor specifically when they speak this way. You take that terminology, you put it back in the context of Leviticus 19 once again, and it seems to refer to one's countrymen most specifically. So, like James sees to, seems to be referring to the judgment of other Christians more than anything else. He's referring to our judgment of people who not only have made a profession of faith, but are apparently still in good standing in the church. Take these two observations back to what I just said about what James means when he says that this kind of speech speaks evil against the law and judges the law, and I think you can start to get a sense of what he's driving at here. Yes, believers will be involved in the judgment of the world. So they will one day act as a judge. But you have to understand that when they do so, they will perform that judgment under the authority of God meaning that they'll judge by His standard of judgment. This quite clearly means that they will not be involved in the judgment of fellow believers, but of unbelievers, since according to God's judgment, believers are already considered justified, not guilty, by the blood of Christ. Do you follow me here? Even then, we will not enter into judgment according to our own standards of judgment. Instead, ours will be a delegated type of judgment. We'll judge in submission to the law. And the law of liberty says that our fellow Christians have been forgiven by the blood of Christ, and so we will not stand in judgment over them. So to treat another Christian in this way, in a way that that contradicts God's estimation of the person, is to actually stand in judgment over the law itself. It's to say that that standard of judgment is questionable. And once we do that, we're no longer a doer of the law, right? Right? We're no longer in submission to the law. Instead, we're a judge of it. In other words, when we speak this way, we're not just contending with God. We're not just issuing a complaint. We're actually putting ourselves on His level. We're saying, I get it, God. You think that your standard is is pretty good, but I don't think uh, it's as good as it could be. You know, maybe if you kind of thought about it like this, as if we're peers or something, in fact, not even peers, because when we condemn and malign our brothers, it's not as if there's even any kind of discussion taking place. No, we've already decided. 
in contradiction to God's judgment, we're saying they're guilty. They need to pay for their crime. So we're actually elevating ourselves above God. When we judge our neighbor, we're actually standing in judgment over God and His standard of righteousness. Again, guys, that's a problem. As James points out here, there is only one lawgiver and judge, and that's God. And we are merely creatures subject to His judgment. So we don't get to create our own standards of judgment. We don't get to have a say in how God ought to do His business. Our role is to simply submit to and and sometimes perhaps even apply His standards of judgment. Not create our own. The one who enters into this sort of judgment has apparently forgotten this. They're acting like they get to have a say in what's fair and unfair for others. When the Scripture clearly tells us, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. See, all sin, even the sin that's committed against us, is ultimately an offense to God first. Meaning He is the one that they ultimately have to answer to, not us. And so God gets the final say in how judgment is applied. The one who condemns his brother forgets this. He's disregarding the fact that in God's estimation, he is but a mere creature and so lacks the authority to determine the appropriate measure of judgment. God may sometimes allow the believer to apply his measure of judgment as a delegation of his authority, but as creatures, they never get to create their own measure of judgment since that would put oneself on a level with God. And once again, how is God going to deal with the Christian who condemns his brother? What can that sort of Christian expect given that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble? Again, no, such speech may not cause them to forfeit their relationship with God, but you can bet it's going to disrupt it. God simply isn't going to allow the people who He's redeemed for His glory to contend with Him for glory. He's not going to allow them to clamber up on His throne and distribute judgments as equals. No, He is the potter, and they are the clay, and they will do as they're told. So if this is you, again, if you're engaged in this type of speech, you need to repent. You need to repent or risk the disciplinary correction of God Himself. I hope you guys are starting to see the big picture here this morning. The big picture is that quite simply, friends, you don't have the authority. You don't have the authority to malign your brother. You don't have the authority to malign your brother. Yeah, you can get angry with your brother. There are going to be moments where they sin against you, and when that happens, it's it's not always... Uh, Wrong to acknowledge their sin as sin and say, hey, that's not okay. We need to fix this. Anger isn't always wrong. In fact, the Bible even tells us, be angry and do not sin. Anger sometimes can be a very right response to sin. But understand, as angry as you may sometimes get with your brother, you are never, you are never ever allowed to resent him. Do you understand the difference? There is a difference Between saying, you know, I don't like what you did to me, but I still love you. It's quite another thing to say, I don't like what you did, and now I hate you for it. You're never allowed to treat your fellow brother or sister in the second sense. You can never say, I don't like what you did, and now I hate you for it. 
The Gospel declares that they've been accepted by God, that they are even loved by God with the very same kind of affection that He has towards His Son. And this is in spite of all the many sins that they've committed against Him. This means that no matter what kinds of sins they've committed against you, and yes, they are sometimes great sins, but still, no matter what kinds of sins they've committed against you, you cannot treat them otherwise. You are not permitted. Again, let me say this. You are not permitted to have any other sort of affection towards them. Since to do so would go against the very wishes of God Himself. And by the way, this, friends, is where the Christian community starts to look different. What's different about us isn't the fact that we don't have problems. And we have problems. The difference is how we handle our problems. We don't sweep our issues under the rug, but neither will we allow them to overcome the bonds that have been formed in Christ. We still love our brothers even when they do inevitably wrong us. And we do that because we simply lack the authority to do otherwise. So if you're wondering how to get there, I'd I'd like to offer a suggestion. Again, the issue is the heart behind this speech more than it is the speech itself. It's the attitude that drives this action that God disciplines and corrects. So that's where our repentance has to begin, right? It has to begin on the inside. And while James doesn't exactly tell us how to put away this sin in this verse, I think he gives us a great hint at the end of verse 12 when he asks this question. He says, But who are you to judge your neighbor? The problem is pride, isn't it? When you judge your neighbor, you're contradicting God's judgment and even placing yourself on a level with God. So the root of the issue is really that, once again, you've forgotten who you are. That's been the theme throughout James, right? How people have forgotten the gospel. That's what's happening here. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten your place. And you've come to think more highly of yourself than the Bible really says you ought. And so if that's the problem, then the solution is to humble yourself before the Lord. Again, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So if the problem is that God disciplines this kind of arrogance, then the solution is to humble oneself before God. How does one do that? Well, I think a really good place to begin is by going back and staring into the gospel once again. Because it's when we go back and remember once more what this message says about our own state before God and what we're owed and what we're receiving instead. It's when we remember what it says about our our own ongoing struggles with sin and the mercy that we receive before God in spite of these sins. In short, it's when we see our own guilt before God and the grace He offers to us instead that we're then inclined to lay our hands upon our mouths and simply submit ourselves before the judgment of God. So if you're struggling in your attitude towards a brother or sister in Christ, begin here. Begin by remembering the gospel. The way that you and I speak to one another in turn speaks volumes to the world about the gospel. So let's pray that we would all put away malice and all deceit, hypocrisy and envy and slander, and that we would, in the words of Peter, Long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, word, that by it we may grow up into salvation. Let's pray.